Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Energy and who controls it has emerged as a major issue in Southeast Asia in recent years. Nowhere is this issue more evident than in the Mekong region, where China's influence on the politics of energy has been steadily on the rise under the umbrella of its Belt and Road Initiative. China's investments have supported Cambodia in being able to meet its increasing domestic energy demands and are also helping Laos to fulfil its vision of becoming the Battery of Asia. To talk us through the role of Chinese energy politics in Laos and Cambodia, I am joined by Dr. Andrea Hefner. Andrea is a lecturer at the Griffith Asia Institute and has over 15 years of experience working with academia, government and international organisations across Australia, Germany and Southeast Asia, especially the Mekong region where she lived and worked for four years in Laos. Andrea's research focuses on transboundary river basin, geopolitics and governing civil society in the Mekong region. Her book, Negotiating for Water Resources, Bridging Transboundary River Basins, was published with Rutledge in 2016. Besides focusing on impact research and policy relevance, Andrea also works on several projects on the ground and regularly leads capacity building programs. In 2021, Andrea received the Australian Business Dean's Council Award for Innovation and Excellence in International Education. Andrea, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on your award, I might add. Thank you. Andrea, let's start by talking about the significance of the Mekong. We're all familiar with this river in Southeast Asia, but what does it mean for the countries of the Mekong region? So the Mekong River is the eighth largest river in the world and includes six different countries, including Cambodia, China, Laos, Myanmar, Thailand and Vietnam. It's also the largest river in Southeast Asia. And it's really important because it's central for food, accommodation and employment for more than 70 million people directly on the river and also because of its unique ecological diversity in fish species and snails, including very well-known species such as the Arawati dolphin or the giant Mekong catfish. Over the last decade, the Mekong region has faced growing challenges, including a steady increase in hydropower projects as a result of rapid economic development of the riparian states. And the need for cheap and renewable energy is rising to meet increasing electricity demands in the region, to balance volatile prices in international energy markets and concerns over carbon emissions. And climate change is increasingly having an impact, visible in the dangerous low levels on the Mekong following the devastating 2019-2020 droughts, which affected downstream countries, especially Vietnam's rice field and Cambodia's fisheries. So overall, floods, droughts, environmental disasters, climate change, soil erosion and deforestation are influencing the people and impacting on the river basin. You've got a new book chapter coming out on China and the politics of energy demand in the Mekong region. One of the key points you make is that energy politics cannot be seen in isolation and it needs to be understood amidst the broader power plays in the region. So with that in mind, what are some of the recent geopolitical developments of power players in the Mekong region? So the Mekong region has become an increasing focal point of different power players competing for influence especially with the recent increase in the rivalry between China and the United States. And Chinese influence, as you mentioned, has been growing through the Belt and Road Initiative and interlinked infrastructure projects, 
such as roads, bridges, and train networks. So as of 2020, China has built 11 dams on the Mekong Langshan River in China, with one further dam being planned and one being constructed. And similarly, on the lower Mekong, nine mainstream dams are planned, with two being already operational, besides the over 100 dams in Mekong tributaries, many of them built through loans and involvements by China. But while China focuses on infrastructure development in Southeast Asia, the Mekong-US partnership expands on the Lower Mekong Initiative from 2009 and was launched in 2020 with the inaugural Mekong-US Partnership Ministerial Meeting between the US and the five Mekong members of ASEAN. And the focus is on strengthening the autonomy, economic independence and sustainable development of the Mekong partner countries and promotion of transparent, rules-based approach to transparency challenges. And the renewed U.S. commitment and additional funding to the Mekong region has really been welcomed. But whether that really translates into viable alternatives to Beijing's massive trade investment and growing influence really remains to be seen. And, and that's especially because of the Langsha Mekong Corporation Special Funds that makes it hard for ASEAN countries to turn away from China. And that's especially visible when we focus on energy politics. Yeah. So can you tell us more about how these trends and developments are linked to energy politics? I mean, a lot of the time when we talk about the Belt and Road Initiative, we're talking about trade and connectivity. But your argument is that energy politics is really central to these major power rivalries that we're seeing play out in the Mekong region. Yes, it is. And that's mainly because if we think that, for example, Thailand has around 22 operational hydropower dams, whereas Vietnam has over 300, mainly medium and small operational hydropower dams. But none of both of these countries, Thailand or Vietnam, have really pursued a large-scale hydropower dam on the Mekong mainstream. And they have kind of shifted their attention to renewable power plants for energy. And while Thailand and Vietnam have focused their attention on a mix of renewable energy, in Cambodia and Laos, the focus is still very on hydropower. And this different kind of energy priority has created opportunities for external powers, including the US, Japan, Australia and South Korea, because these four countries have pushed the agenda for renewable energy development which has been embedded in various initiatives, as I mentioned earlier, the Mekong-US partnership, but also the Mekong-Japan cooperation, the Mekong-Australia partnership, and the Mekong-Korea partnership. This drive meets the demand of Thailand and Vietnam, but again, on the other side, Cambodia and Laos have less enthusiasm in embracing these initiatives, and, and Cambodia and Laos have really continued to embrace how to power dams for energy, and China has played a leading role in development hydropower dams in these two countries. And as a result of that, Chinese influence in energy politics has been steadily on the rise, supporting Cambodia being able to fill its increasing domestic energy demand and Laos becoming the battery of Asia. Yeah, so can you tell us more about this demand for energy? I am interested to know whether it's all for domestic consumption, which seems to be the case in Cambodia. But you're also suggesting that for Laos, it's all about exporting the energy that they're producing through hydropower. Yes, the approach is quite different from both countries. So in general, eight hydropower projects that are operational in Cambodia were developed, financed or constructed by China or Chinese companies. And in Laos, that was nearly doubled with 15 Chinese-aided hydropower projects operational. 
with key projects, for example, being the Namu 1 to 5 by Power China on the Namu River, which is kind of a key tributary on the Mekong River. But maybe let's focus on Laos as a case people would be aware of. Laos has a population of around 7.5 million, with poverty levels really being reduced significantly in the last decade, with Laos aiming to leave the least development country status by 2026. And albeit this progress in reducing power levels, Laos is still heavily reliant on external money through aid and increasing foreign direct investments from China. And this growth of China has also led to policies of turning land into capital and becoming the battery of Asia, giving priority to acquisition of land concession and hydropower developments. And for example, in 2020, Laos had 70 operation power projects, and which are 61 of them hydropower projects. So around 80% of electricity is hydropower. And China plays a big role here because unlike in Cambodia, in Laos, the focus is on exporting electricity to neighboring countries in order to become the battery of Asia, in order to grow economic growth within the country. So let me ask you about how the energy production is being used to drive Laos' move towards a more economically profitable country. Are these hydropower developments a way for Laos to recover from the economic impact of COVID and continue to strengthen its economy? Or is it leading them towards a situation where they are really reliant and in debt to China? Yeah, unlike in Cambodia, around around 70% of Laos' generation capacity has been dedicated for export. So quite a large amount. And domestic demand, however, has also been increasing And also thinking that Laos per capita electricity consumption is among the lowest in ASEAN, but it's also rising at a rapidly rate. So in 2020, just to put it in perspective, revenue for electricity generation was one-eighth of the country's GDP. And so hydropower development is really the focus for moving from a landlocked to a landlinked country and becoming the battery of Asia. And 15 hydropower plants, as I mentioned, have been built or financed or constructed by China or Chinese companies. And another big addition to influence within Laos energy politics was last year when in March 2021, Laos State Power Company Electricity to Laos and the China and Southern Power Grid Company signed a 25-year power grid concession after the Lao government founded itself, as you mentioned, with rising debt levels alongside the economic downturn of COVID. And the Chinese maturity company, EDLT, really deepens China's involvement in the Lao government's goal of transforming itself into the battery of Asia and gives EDTL effective control of electricity export to neighboring countries. And it's not just the dams either. I mean, I note that the new China-Laos railway opened in December 2021, and that was a $5.9 billion development. So these are really part of a suite of interlinked infrastructure developments, you know, not just the dams, but bridges, roads, railways that are contributing to this greater reliance on debt from China. Yes, and I think there's estimate that even before the pandemic, which has significantly impacted on Laos tourism industry and remittances from abroad, even before that there was 
an estimated debt of around 45% of GDP towards China. So we can clearly see that through the Belt and Road Initiative, increasing trains, as you mentioned, reopening last year, which was a, a first for Laos to have a train and the uptake has been very high of it. Also some significant road developments and other infrastructure projects alongside bridges have really added to the influence of China besides energy politics in Laos over the last few years. So, of course, these hydropower investments have implications for energy production, for debt, of course, they impact on local communities and, you know, geographic landscapes. What do they tell us about climate change? What's the link between these dams and and climate change? Yes, and climate change has been playing an increasing role in the Mekong region. And just one of the recently released reports by IPCC mentioned that Southeast Asia and the Mekong region will be one of the most effective areas of climate change. And I think just to put it in perspective, when we talk about energy politics or energy security, we always need to understand also the linkage between energy, water and food security as well. And in 2020 and 2021, there were huge droughts in the Mekong region, and they have been becoming more severe over the last decade. And they really had an impact not only on agriculture, rice production or water availability, but also, as I mentioned, on hydropower, because if there's not enough water available in the dry season, it's very hard to operate hydropower as well. And just one other example, how climate change and energy, water and food security is interlinked. Just earlier this week, there was an announcement by the Phnom Penh Water Supply Authority highlighting that there is a clean water shortage in Phnom Penh and other parts of Cambodia because of the record low levels of water in the Mekong River, which have been accumulated over the last five years. And I think one other impact is also when we look at the Mekong Delta, for example, in Vietnam, where rice farmers have been significantly impacted by the low levels of water in the last few years, impacting on having a third round of rice every year, which really impacts on on Vietnam's export as being a leader in rice production. Mm. So what are the responses to this Chinese influence in Laos and Cambodia? Do they vary between the two countries in terms of the coverage and the rhetoric around the hydropower dams? Yeah, I think there's some clear differences here. And maybe to start with, with Laos. In Laos, due to the system and the way the government runs the country, protests or comments on hydropower dams are very rare and non-existent. And, and that's really different to Thailand, Cambodia, or Vietnam, where voices against hydropower dams have been more vocal. So in Laos, that's not really not existing. And that also shows that the lack of classroom empowerment within Laos does not really allow dam projects to proceed unimpeded with the dominant dam rhetoric by the government and also visibility, for example, in the media is really focusing on economic growth and becoming the battery of Asia. So that's clearly the picture we see in Laos. There's not really any uptake or protest or, or discussion of the negative impacts of hydropower. The focus is clearly on the benefits for the country in regards to leaving the least developed country status and also in regards to becoming battery of Asia. In Cambodia, that looks quite different. There have been, as I mentioned earlier, quite a few Chinese-funded hydropower dams in Cambodia. And some of them have actually received some media coverage or protests by people. 
they have not come without resistance. And in Cambodia, there are widespread studies regarding, for example, the negative impact of Chinese funded dams in Cambodia, impacts including drought, low sediment, and also disruption of fish migration and impacts on the Tonle Sap Lake, which are so crucial in Cambodia. But these impacts by NGOs, local residents, and environmental organizations have been more spoken and are available in Cambodia. For example, one example is the Arang Dam project, which is the Chinese-influenced hydropower dam. This is currently being postponed because it experienced a high degree of resistance compared to other projects. And the protests kind of escalated to a point where most protesters were not only local residents, but also people from Phnom Penh and neighboring provinces. And with such an escalation and protest, the, the Cambodian government really saw it as a risk of its power and decided to hold the project. That's just one example in Cambodia where protests or people outspoken had an influence on a Chinese investment in the country itself. So we've talked a lot about China, Laos and Cambodia. What about the US? Has it stepped up its investments and efforts in relation to hydropower and why? The US and Japan and other players trying to influence what's happening in the Mekong region, also in regards to, to energy politics and more broadly, because I think it's really important to understand that energy politics are not dealt in a silo. They are part of bigger developments in the region. And if you think about from Obama to Biden, the, the US has always been active in promoting transparency and accountability of hydropower dams. And in 2020, as one example, the Stimson Center which is kind of a U.S. government-funded think tank, they launched them to monitor the water flow along the Mekong and the impacts of hydropower dams in China on the riparian states. And also the U.S., as I mentioned earlier, upgraded its old law Mekong initiative to the Mekong-U.S. partnership in 2020. Another signal where they're trying to balance the power with China in the region in pledging a lot of money to the region. And quite similar, we haven't talked much about Japan, but it's really interesting to look also at, for example, Japan as a traditional regional power in the Mekong region that has been working rather silently but actively within the Mekong countries uh, so that China will not become an exclusive power that solely dominates the region. And Japan annually hosts, for example, the Mekong-Japan Summit and Japan's assisting has always been on the rise. And in 2018 and later on, Japan and the U.S. also had an increasing collaboration calling the Japan-U.S. Mekong Power Partnership to boost clean energy production for the Mekong region. So again, a focus on energy politics here by other players outside the region, including the U.S. and China. I wanted to ask you about the reaction from other global players. What about neighbours, other Southeast Asian countries? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think if you look at Vietnam, for example, Vietnam is Laos' most trusted friend with both countries fighting along each other in the Vietnam War, looking back to to over 40 years of close political ties, long economic and cultural ties. But Vietnam has a high interest in growing concerns over China's influence in Laos as well. China has, for example, overtaken Vietnam as the largest investor and lender in Laos, And keeping Laos by Vietnam signs is kind of a top foreign policy priority for Hanoi. And last year, in 2021, Vietnam announced that it had gifted a new parliamentary building worth over 110 million US dollars to Laos, again showcasing an increasing interest by 
regional actors as well in Laos and also in Cambodia. Because if we think about Vietnam's influence or interest in Cambodia, that has also been of concerns because Vietnam cannot really compete financially with Beijing in providing, for example, loans and investment. But if we look at the foreign direct investment in Cambodia in 2019, 43% of the investment came from China and only around 7% from Vietnam. And that really is another concern for Vietnam as well as financial resources where often the determined factor in deepening both the China-Lao and the China-Cambodia ties. And even so, Laos has not been as close to China as Cambodia yet. Um, Vietnam is, is really concerned that that might happen as well. But also being transparent that Vietnam has less resources available than China and some of the other global players in the region. Andrea, where do you see all this going? Do you see Cambodia being able to meet its energy demands? Do you see Laos becoming further enmeshed in debt to China and more reliant on Chinese money? Or do you see these countries perhaps opening themselves up to entertaining the idea of renewable energies? I think renewable energies and and having an energy mix plays already a big role, for example, in Thailand and Vietnam, where really a focus is on trying to balance out different renewable energy option, for example, in Vietnam, also focusing on solar and offshore wind production as well. In Laos, for example, if climate change and other impacts on hydropower dam, for example, in the dry season, do not allow to have a stable electricity supply, there might be a focus uh, towards other energy demands. Within Laos, for example, coal recently becoming uh, of more interest and more power stations being built with a focus on coal, which is not a renewable energy, but it seems to be one of the areas where Laos possibly tries to balance some of the challenges in the dry season in regards to uh, electricity from hydropower dams. Andrea, it's a really interesting topic, which we've looked at from different angles on SEAC stories in the past. And we're really grateful for the geopolitics energy perspective that you've brought to the issue today. All the best with the publication of the chapter and good luck with your future research in the region. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me today. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.